This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, do people lie more? Since so much of our communication takes place on social media and with smartphones, the situation along the Poland-Belarus border is tense, getting more tense by the hour, and there are concerns it could spiral right out of control. And we'll chat with an Afghanistan veteran in Calgary who has a very special day planned for Remembrance Day, all to benefit veterans and interpreters stuck in Afghanistan. Uh, This is going to be an interesting conversation, I think. We're going to be chatting about communication and, you know, the way that we communicate. And uh, there's a great quote from Mike Tyson that I absolutely love. He says, social media has made you all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. There's no doubt if you've been on social media, you know, people say things they would never say in person. But what about truthfulness? Do people lie more when they're communicating via technology than they typically would? I don't know. Let's find out. There's been a lot of work done around this. We're going to chat with David Markowitz, who is an assistant professor of social media data analytics at the University of Oregon. David, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So this data we're going to be talking about, the research that you did, basically it builds on earlier work, right? That goes back a number of years, a pretty small study to try and find out if people lie using technology. That's exactly right. So a study back in 2004 evaluated how the characteristics of different media platforms predict how much people lied. And what it, what it observed back in 2004 is that most lies per social interaction occurred over the phone and the least occurred via email. Okay. So you took that, expanded on it. And then, I mean, now we've got so many different ways of communicating. I mean, you get new ones every day. Um, tell us what your work, how, how you went about collecting the data that you collected. Exactly right. So instead of collecting student data, which is what the 2004 study did, I recruited participants from the general public. And these are people who were paid for their time. Uh, Over 250 participants, they reported the number of social interactions they had each day for seven days in a row. They also reported on the number of interactions, crucially, that contained a lie across different media, such as face-to-face communication, the phone, texting, video chat, email, and social media. Okay, so a bunch of different categories here. What did you find? Is there a difference? Do people lie more using these devices? Yeah, so consistent with prior work, uh, people told the most lies per social interaction via media that are synchronous, meaning that they can talk back and forth to people seamlessly, media that were distributed, meaning that people were far away from each other physically, and also media that did not contain a record, meaning that the messages go away after they're communicated. So the the media that fit that description were ones over over the phone and video chat, which is largely consistent with the 2004 study, at least for the phone. So basically, it's a paper trail. If there's no paper trail, they're more likely to uh, bend the truth a little bit more than they would if there's going to be a record of what they've said. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting way of putting it. So the, the crucial part about this is that um, these results are correlational. They're not causal yet. But what's really important to know is that the differences in the line rates across the different communication technologies, they were pretty small. But what really mattered most was who was lying and each individual person's lying tendencies. That tended to predict um, line rates more than the actual media themselves. Okay, so if somebody is more prone to lie, generally speaking, they're going to be more prone to lie on any kind of technology, whereas really honest people are still really honest. It doesn't matter how they're communicating. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so the media do matter. I don't want to say that the media don't matter. They certainly matter because we found that there's a systematic link between deceptive, uh, deception and the specific technology that's used. But what matters more is the actual individual who is lying rather than what they're lying uh, on or what platform they're using. Is everybody lying when you when you talk to these people and they self-report? Are we seeing a tremendous amount of lying because of technology? We're we're not, and that's oh. a common misperception about uh, the relationship that we have to the truth and also to technology in general. So, misperception is that just because technology is involved, deception must be involved, and that's actually not the case, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, on average, only about eight percent of interactions reportedly contained a lie in the study, which is also consistent with other work I've done on mobile dating deception, where only 7% of messages that people send to their partners on dating apps are deceptive. So deception is actually the exception, and it's not the rule for how people communicate. And there's a lot of really adaptive reasons for that. I, I'm surprised. What, 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 give me some of the reasons, because I think it would be the exact opposite. Exactly right. Well, just think about everyday communication. If um, if I had to question what you were saying, oh, is this person being honest or credible or truthful to me, it would be exhausting. Yeah. And we wouldn't really have that trust or bond with other people. Um, and so not only do we believe that most people are honest, most people on average are honest to us because otherwise society would not function in a really um, coherent and efficient way. Interesting work. Very interesting. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate your time. No, thank you so much, and have a great one. You too. That's David Markowitz, an assistant professor of social media data analytics at the University of Oregon. I'm going to turn our attention overseas. We're going to talk about what's going on along the Poland-Belarus border. Um, it's, well, it's being called a potential powder keg. It really is a situation that uh, the international community is keeping a close eye on. Um, Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet of the United Nations called on states today to resolve the, quote, intolerable migrant crisis along that border and said that under international law, people should not be prevented from seeking asylum. There's migrants that are trapped in Belarus trying to get over the Polish border, which is the gateway into the EU in that part of the world. So um, it's, it's a real mess. It's really not going well. And there's concern that it's going to get much, much worse. So let's try and get a handle on what the situation is. We're going to chat with Andrew Rosillis now. Um, Andrew is a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Andrew, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a great pleasure. Um, try and explain to me if you can. I, I think I have a bit of an understanding of what's going on there, but the situation at the Belarus border, it's not about Belarus and Poland. It's much larger than that, right? Well, I mean, there there is the wider picture of uh, where where the Russians are vis-a-vis the Belarusians and the former Soviet space. Uh, there is that huge big picture about sphere of influence mm-hmm. uh, that Russia is trying to hold on to. 
so that is very much part of it. So Ukraine is linked with that. So is Georgia. And you can keep going around the former Soviet space. There are a number of conflicts going on there. Uh, and the Russians are trying to do various means of holding on to their sphere of influence in that, in that, in that area. Um, the current situation that we see with Belarus is... Uh, very much localized in the sense of it's, it's Lukashenko working on trying to keep himself in power, obviously with Russian support in the background. But as far as we're able to see, this is this uh, refugee issue is very much not Moscow-directed, uh, although Moscow would, would, would say, okay, go ahead. But really this is coming from Minsk and Lukashenko himself trying to stay in power mm-hmm. and trying to... Uh, force the West to to go easy on the sanctions because after the elections last summer, uh, uh, to some like in 2020, where uh, where basically it was, it was clearly fraudulent and a number of sanctions have been put on the Lukashenko regime, he's trying to fight back and he's using uh, migration, which he's actually supporting flights into Minsk from various parts of Africa and the Middle East. Uh, a lot of them are coming in through Turkey uh, to to actually then force these migrants against the Polish and Lithuanian border, because also there's a lot of yes. things going on in Lithuania, to force them in, essentially, to, to get them into the European Union and to use this, to weaponize, to punish uh, the European Union, Lithuania, Poland in particular, uh, for standing up to Lukashenko with the sanctions. So basically, he's trying to say, I'll, I'll stop the, the pushing the migrants against you if you uh, let up on your sanctions against me, recognize me as the president of uh, Belarus, and let's get back to normal. And and the situation here, like you say, these these, these migrants are coming from all over uh, the Middle East. They're yeah. coming from yeah. Africa. They're coming from Afghanistan, all apparently with the welcome of Belarus to be used essentially as political pawns in their struggle, right? Exactly. Exactly. So the thing is that, that these are, these are uh, it's not like uh, people who have been traveling on bare feet right. across, uh, you know, miles who are seeking political uh, asylum. These are, in effect, people who've gotten on airplanes, who've had documents, who've had money to pay airlines to fly them, you know, and they arrive and all of a sudden they come to the border of Lithuania and Poland, they no longer have their documents and they no longer have any money and they become desperate. Uh, you know, in a fairly short period of time. So clearly, this is a this is a a forced artificial situation that Belarus is creating. It's not a natural migration of people who right. are war, you know war torn refugees who are trying to desperately seek asylum. This is not the situation. Now, the situation the the concern here is that this could really get out of hand quickly because, like you said, Moscow um, they're supporting Belarus. They're sending bombers to patrol the airspace. Uh, you've got Polish troops amassing along the border. There's really a potential for this to kick off. Oh, did we lose Andrew? Okay, I'll put Andrew on hold and see if Sarah can get him back. But yeah, the situation here, it's really, really awful. Um, just to give you the latest information um, that the UN is reporting here, uh, Moscow sent um, two strategic bomber planes to patrol uh, Belarusian airspace. Um, and the UN is saying, stop, de-escalate. We especially with the increase in military activity that we're seeing. There's more troops being deployed. The rhetoric is getting more heated. And caught up in the middle of all of this, unfortunately, are these migrants from, as I said, they're coming from the Middle East. They're coming from Afghanistan. They're coming from Africa. Um, and being welcomed into Belarus by uh, Belarusian authorities in order to use them as leverage and as pressure 
uh, on the EU to get them to ease sanctions against Belarus. Literally pawns in a political game. It really is a horrible situation. The United Nations saying that these hundreds of men, women, and children must not be forced to spend another night in freezing weather without adequate shelter, food, water, and medical care. Under international law, no one should ever be prevented from seeking protection, and individual consideration must be given to their protection needs. So where do we go from here? That's the question people are asking. Is this going to get worse? Looks like it is right now. Uh, or is there a chance that we can reverse course on this? We'll take a quick break, see if we can't get Andrew back and get more of his insight when we come back right after this. All right, delighted that we have Andrew back. We lost our connection there, but he is joining us again. It's Andrew Rasulius, who is a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. A- Andrew, thanks so much for getting back to us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry, I don't know what happened to the phone, but it, yeah. uh, it went dead and we retra- we powered it. And technology, okay. you know how it goes. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we, absolutely. I, I was just, I wanted to know what you think in terms of where this might go, because we're seeing, you know, increased troops being bought to the border, Russia now sending some military equipment to the border, and the United Nations very concerned that this could head into a, a, a crisis that just continues to escalate. Do you think that's possible? Oh, yes. I mean, this is serious, um, and they want it to be serious, uh, because in a way, this distracts attention from all the other things that are going on, as I mentioned, in the, in the former Soviet space. So uh, this issue now is because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Ukraine now. We're talking yeah. about Belarus. So, so that the distraction is, is in play. And it's real. Um, so you've got both a, 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 a humanitarian issue and a potential military-type conflict issue in the sense that well, the humanitarian side, we can see what's happening. These people are out in the open. Uh, winter is coming, uh, and there is going to be a humanitarian crisis emerging in terms of the caring of these people. On the other hand, uh, there's already been uh, evidence that some of these people have been armed in some ways with axes and picks and so on, uh, but there is a potential of escalation of violence along the Polish and Lithuanian frontiers. Hmm. This is a serious problem. Uh, and and it's dynamic, and I cannot foretell how it will right. go, except to tell you that there is a potential military-style conflict issue uh, coming there, potentially, and certainly a humanitarian problem. This is a serious problem that uh, there's a whole bunch of people now who are getting wired up to deal with this. The question, okay, so we've got Russia, obviously, um, sort of lending their support, however strongly, to uh, Belarus. Um, on the other side, Poland is basically, and Lithuania, you're talking about the EU, essentially. Um, yeah. how, how big could this conflagration ultimately end up being? Is this is this going to be another proxy war? I mean, what's the possibility here? Yeah, I don't think it would, uh, it would I mean, violence is one thing, but I don't think it'd be a full-scale conventional type conflict. Right. But certainly uh, an element of violence along the borders is very plausible. Uh, this would involve all of the European Union, um, because both Lithuania, as you said, both Lithuania and Poland are right. members of the European Union. So this becomes not just a sovereign issue for Lithuania and Poland, it becomes a, an issue for the European Union as a whole. And everyone is very mindful of 2015 and the Syrian refugee crisis that they went through. Uh, And so this is very fresh in their minds. And so now they're trying to avoid another crisis. And so they cannot simply open the gates up in Poland and Lithuania and have a flood of these, uh, these, because they're essentially uh, uh, economic migrants that the Belarusians have imported. And they, they, the European Union and, and these and Lithuania and Poland are not strong enough to actually accept an infinite amount because it won't stop. 
so they've got to cap it somehow. And at the same time, cap it and control uh, the violent potential that Lukashenko could generate vis-a-vis these these migrants, these refugees, and his own security people who are meddling in this. So it seems... it's almost like he's an evil genius. This is very, very effective. What, what, what's the resolution? It seems like he's really come up with a, an incredibly effective way of leveraging pressure using political pawns. Yeah, he's thinking outside the box. I mean, the fact of uh, when he put down that, he brought the Orion aircraft down you yep. know, by, by creating a thing. I mean, he, he is out-of-the-box thinker. Yeah, and this is unconventional sort of approaches uh, to modern warfare, if you will. Uh, the, yeah, the, the term hybrid warfare is thrown out a lot. But there's a point. This is, this is conflict uh, using very much out-of-the-box uh, measures, some violent, some not, some humanitarian, but all aimed to change the political calculus of his opponents. So he is a shrewd operator. Absolutely. And this, is a, and this is a challenge. This is a challenge. I don't have the answer. There's yep. a bunch of people in different capitals trying to work out the answers. Um, but I can just tell you as an analyst that this is a very dynamic situation and a very serious situation merits our attention. And, and, it's, and it's snowballing minute by minute almost. I mean, time is of the essence here. It's not like yep, this is going to be is. a long game. It is, both, on, both in weather-wise and in terms of what Lukashenko could do to escalate it by arming people. Unbelievable. Okay. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your insight. We might check in again uh, as this progresses. I'm glad we reestablished contact. We could complete the interview, and I'd be very happy to uh, come on and do it again uh, at your pleasure. We will do that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a situation that, you know, you're starting to hear uh, talk about it, and people are starting to pay attention to it, and it's rising to the level of news headlines in our country, and uh, unfortunately, I think the expectation is uh, we can expect to see more of that. Well, it's obviously it's a Remembrance Day event, but it's a great story of a Calgary veteran who's raising money to uh, help veterans in our country and also to try and help get interpreters out of Afghanistan. We'll chat now with Teg Singh, Who's the man in question? Did I get the name right there, sir? Yes, you did. Perfect. Thank you okay. so much. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Just uh, let's walk through it. What are your plans for tomorrow? It sounds like you got a lot on the go. Yeah, so tomorrow I have about 11 different stops I'm making. I'll be riding my bicycle around Calgary to different military landmarks, um, starting at the military museums, going down to Peacekeepers Park, Battalion Park, uh, all along Memorial Ride, I got a few different stops down there, heading past City Hall, and then ending at Valor Park at the end of the uh, at the end of the ride. So, how long is this trip in total? Uh, I think the riding time is just about two hours, but okay. I'll be stopping at every landmark, and then I will be recording videos and you know talking about my experience as a veteran and about what a lot of veterans go through, especially during this time of year. It can be very difficult for many of them. Um, And also raising awareness about the the really um, urgent need that there is to get veterans that um, mental health care support that they deserve. And, you know, the reason you're doing this and the reason you found this bike ride, um, you know, it it came to be is because exercise really meant a lot to you, right? In, In terms of dealing with PTSD, this is something that really has become part of your life. Absolutely. You know, when I got back, you know, I, I, I went to Iraq when I was really young, about 21 years old. Um, and then a few years later, I went to Afghanistan. When I got back from my first deployment, I knew that something wasn't quite right. I went to go see someone about it. They said, hey, give it more time. Maybe it's just stress. Yeah. Um, and exercise was one of those ways that really helped me cope. 
um, getting out and doing things socially was a bit of a struggle for me, and that was something that I could do by myself. Um, so it was a win-win as far as I, can, I was concerned. I kept going with it, and, you know, I'm really glad that this is kind of where it led me was advocacy and, you know, also taking care of my own mental health. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, um, tell us about your service. You went over when you were 21, you say? Yeah, I enlisted in the Army when I was 18. Um, I was a fire support specialist, so my job was to walk around with infantrymen, and I would call in mortars, artillery, and attack aircraft to to bomb targets whenever the infantry got into a firefight. Um, And I was stationed most of the time out of Fort Richardson, Alaska, you know, throughout my about seven years of service. Um, I did travel around the U.S. quite a a bit for training. Hmm. Um, And then I got... I, got, I, I left Alaska in, uh, I think, 2010. I transitioned to the California National Guard. I'm originally from California. Okay. Um, and then uh, I spent a year and a half in the National Guard um, before I got out of the service, and then I immigrated to Canada right after that. Um, now, in your time in country, you spent, uh, obviously, working with Afghan interpreters and other supporters and things like that. And I know they're part of your fundraising plan. Just tell us, what was it like working with them? What, why is this important for you to support them now, all these years later, um, based on what happened while you were there? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest, uh, like, a sort of emotional push for wanting to do more for the interpreters right now is, like, the history, the history that we have, that I, the connection I was able to build with the interpreters while I was there is, of course, you know, very near and dear to me. But now, especially seeing that the Taliban has taken over, I know that how little support that they have. And unfortunately, I have entirely too many heartbreaking stories about things that happened to our interpreters while we were there. And they were honestly public enemy number one, you know, just for having anything to do with us. Now that they have almost no support now, it it really breaks my heart. I wish that there was something that I could do. But now, thanks to the Veterans Transition Network, who's helping so much um, to aid them, there is something that I can do. So I'm going to jump at that opportunity. You know, while I was there in country working with the interpreters, over time, like, you know, my first deployment was 15 months. My second deployment was 10 months. You get to know them quite well. You work with the same people day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Everything I do, if I'm driving down the road and my truck gets blown up, their truck gets blown up. If I'm running into gunfire, they're right there behind me the whole time so they can, you know, talk to the, you know, uh, Afghan army or talk to Iraqi police officers, you know, while we're on the scene. So you, you develop these close bonds with them and really... Just as you have a very similar rapport to what we have with other soldiers, where there's nothing you wouldn't do for that person. So it really breaks my heart that so many of them are being persecuted these days, and they deserve better. And right now, we know they're in a desperate situation there right now. Things are extremely tough. So tell us how the money you're raising will go to benefit them. I know safe houses is a big issue right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Veterans Transition Network is taking care of all this. That's a Canadian charity. I think they're based out of BC. Um, They have uh, a lot of connections that are helping them to stay safe in country and helping to fly them out of Afghanistan right now. So that's where a lot of that money, well, some of that, a portion of that money is going to to help them that way. Um, How can people get involved? How can they help support your cause? Uh, well, right now with the bike ride that I'm doing, I'm trying to bring awareness to this issue, um, not just the interpreter issue, but also you know raising money for veterans' mental health. Um, the Veterans Transition Network, aside from what they're doing with interpreters right now, 
doing a ton to support veterans and their mental health and help them transition out of the military. So important. So what I'm doing is um, I have a GoFundMe campaign. It's linked straight to VTN. And I'm encouraging as many people as, as I can to donate you know, whatever they can give, please, like, it helps more than you realize. Um, they can find it on uh, online. They can go to yycbike.ca. There's a link there for the GoFundMe. If you find me on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can look at my name, Thig, saying I'm, you know, one of, I'm very, I, I stand out very well. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, and all of my social media accounts have the GoFundMe link. You can go there and you can donate directly. Uh, I'll give you a retweet here, so if people are looking, check out my Twitter, and uh, I'll retweet Teg, and uh, you can get involved and help out this cause. Good luck tomorrow, sir, and, and thank you for your service. I hope it goes well tomorrow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks very much. That is Teg Singh, who is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, and tomorrow in Calgary, as you heard, he'll be riding from one military memorial to another. I think it's about 40K almost. And he'll be riding on his bike tomorrow, raising money all the while for the Veterans uh, Transition Support Fund and for um, to help Afghan interpreters and other support staff that are still there and trying to get out. So if you want to help out, like I said, I'll retweet um, his profile and uh, check it out. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.